John chapter 12, beginning at verse 12. The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him, and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Amen. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Father, we come to you so grateful for the victory that was accomplished by our Lord Jesus Christ. In his life, there was victory. In his death, there was victory. In his resurrection, there is victory. And there is continuing victory in his ascension. We glory, Father, in all that Jesus purchased for us. We want to enter more and more into that uh, and glorify you even through our thinking about Palm Sunday. So I pray for your anointing upon me as I bring your word. May it be faithful to the text and uh, may our hearts be drawn out to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was Nisan 10, the year AD 30, and the guards had just opened up the gates of Jerusalem and uh, there was a big procession that was coming through those gate, uh, gates. Uh, the crowds weren't huge, but they did line the streets, and they were welcoming and cheering for a man that they knew quite well. But the procession I'm talking about right now is not the procession of Jesus. In fact, this procession occurred on the opposite side of the city. While it's very similar to Christ's triumphal entry in many different ways, uh, it was an altogether different procession. You may not have even realized there were two processions that happened on uh, Palm Sunday, but they were. In fact, I believe personally that Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and the way in which he did it, and the way in which God orchestrated it, was a very deliberate contrast to one that was happening and had been happening on Nisan 10 for most of Jesus' life. While Jesus entered the city from the east, history tells us that Pontius Pilate entered the city from the west on exactly the same day, leading a large army of soldiers. And even though they were entering from different sides of the city, their destination was approximately the same place. It was the Temple Mount where the uh, fortress Antonia, the Roman fortress, was also located. Um, and the purpose of Pilate's entry was to keep crowd control at the Passover. If you look at verse 12, it speaks of a great multitude. How great was it? Well, we're not sure exactly, but if Josephus's um, estimations of how many people were coming to this Passover are correct, there were at least two and a half million pilgrims that had descended upon the city. Now, anytime you get a crowd that big, you're going to have some trouble. I mean, even in a small congregation like ours, you've got some troublemakers, right? <laughs> some people who like to have fun. Well, there were a lot of people who were having fun at these uh, big uh, festivals. And in Luke 
chapter 13, it records that Pilate had brutally slaughtered some Galilean pilgrims that had come to uh, this Passover the year before. Same week, but the year before. And uh, whatever trouble they were causing, we aren't told, but uh, Jesus said that Pilate mixed their human blood together with the blood of the sacrifices. This was his intimidation tactic. And uh, he was a very brutal guy. Brutality seemed to be the main way that Rome kept control of the empire. And so on Palm Sunday, he came from his main headquarters in Caesarea, and uh, he came to very graphically show that Rome was in control. And he stayed there for the whole week. Now, Christ's procession was largely a peasant procession, while the other procession was very imperial in its... Um, decorations and in its uh, style. Christ rode on a donkey while Pilate rode on a stallion. Uh, Christ was surrounded by disciples while Pilate was surrounded by a large army, but he was also surrounded probably with quite a few psychophants who wanted to please him. Christ's procession proclaimed the kingdom of heaven while Pilate showcased the kingdom of man. The basis for Christ's kingdom, I think, was beautifully illustrated by the fact that the Lamb of God was walking in the midst of 250,000 lambs that were being marched from the east. In fact, I think that's why Jesus very deliberately marched from the east rather than the more convenient route from the west. And I believe this was why Pilate did not march from the east. He marched from the west because it would have been an incredibly congested area on the east side of uh, Jerusalem. And so the nature of Christ's kingdom was symbolized by the lambs. The nature for Caesar's kingdom was symbolized by the weaponry that Pilate's soldiers were ready to use on anybody who made a wrong move. Uh, one thing that's important to know is that when Pilate's procession came into Jerusalem, it represented not just Rome's power, but also Rome's imperial theology. Caesar was proclaimed to be the son of God on their coins, on their statues, on their Roman buildings. And of course, the Gospel of John par excellence is the gospel that shows Jesus to be the only begotten son of God. And the word only is as clear a statement and rejection of Caesar's claims as uh, you could get. Caesar was also proclaimed to be father, lord, savior, sovereign, and provider. And so you can see that these two parades represented a huge clash in worldviews. And so it would have been exceedingly dangerous, dangerous business for Jesus to have his entry as a king on the exact same day that historically the Roman armies were entering this city to spot and to put down any potential insurrections. Now, of course, Jesus was not engaging in insurrection. He was not a revolutionary. But his motive was indeed transformation and complete replacement of earth's ways with God's ways. And the theology of this entire chapter, which I'm going to show you kind of the literary way that John is weaving this theme through this chapter, confronts imperial theology head on. On many levels, Christ was, and he continues to be, opposed and persecuted for the next 2,000 years for precisely the fact that his gospel meddles with politics. A lot of Christians don't want to meddle with politics. Don't mix religion and politics, right? 
No, he did not leave politics alone. Caesar and Christ were both declaring their kingship over the entire world. Caesar and Christ both claimed the spot of Messiah and of Savior. Both claimed to be the only Lord. 1 Timothy 6.15 says that Jesus is, quote, the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so this was the kind of theology that got early Christians uh, into trouble. While hundreds of thousands welcomed Jesus with ecstatic expectation and enthusiasm, there were also crowds, probably a lot fewer crowds, but there were crowds who welcomed Pontius Pilate and his armies who cheered uh, this brutal man. In fact, we know that they even cast flowers in front of, uh, in front of his horses. Uh, most scholars, I think, believe that uh, the, the Sadducees paid people to cheer <laughs> this man because he was definitely not a well-liked guy. But here is the point that I'm setting up here. The city of Jerusalem was ritually welcoming two different kingdoms two radically different philosophies of life, and two different kings, Jesus and Caesar. And by the end of this week, even before the end of this week, the Jewish leaders would very forthrightly declare, we have no king but Caesar. Now, they probably said it with gravel in their mouth because they did not like Caesar themselves. Uh, state is rarely like rivals. But they said it because this confrontation with Jesus left them with no alternative. If they had to choose between Rome and Jesus, the choice was obvious to them. They needed Rome to stay in power. Now, today's sermon title may seem a little bit odd, The Politics of Palm Sunday, but John's gospel repeatedly states that it was politics that led people to reject Jesus. It was politics that made these rival political powers lay down their own agendas so that they could reach across the aisle, join together in their opposition to Jesus. Now, in some ways, we've got a, a taste of this uh, uh, in the previous election with um, Alabama. Alabama's election, where the Democrats and the Republicans joined forces to oppose Judge Roy Moore. And a lot of people are scratching their heads or mystified. Why would the Republican establishment support this Democratic candidate? So odd, because this Democratic candidate is beyond horrible. Here is a man who is not only immoral, not only anti-constitutionalist and everything he stands for, and, and pro-abortion, but he hates the Republicans, and yet the Republican establishment is supporting this man. Why? Because they could control him, whereas a Ten Commandments, Judge Roy Moore, might not be able to be controlled, and he might expose some of the corruption that is going on. But ultimately, both situations, first century, 21st century, show a clash of Christianity with the politics of the day. And here is the point. It is an inevitable clash any time you have the true, full nature of the gospel of the Scripture. There is absolutely no surprise at the persecution that China is imposing upon the church in that nation. No surprise. The gospel of John says that it is inevitable whenever the true claims of Jesus are advanced. The church that is at peace with a government like theirs, the one that's described in this Bible here, has a truncated message, a different message than what the Gospel of John portrays. And so the point that I am making in this introduction is that any Jew of the first century who was reading uh, these chapters, this book, 
would have sensed an enormous tension that was brewing in the story. We need to read this book through first century eyes. While the Jewish leadership did not like Rome so well, they were in bed with Rome through bribes and lobbying, coalitions, changes in the law, attempts to control the people. Rome needed them, they needed Rome. And I want to just give you an example. There's many examples could be given, but if you look at chapter 11 of John, this is one expression of this. As much as the political parties of the Sadducees, Pharisees, and Herodians hated each other, they hated a threat to their power much more than they hated each other. And so here is an innocent Lazarus who's kind of making trouble for them. He's not intending to make trouble. His presence alone makes trouble for them, and so he becomes the sacrificial lamb. So they're making a backdoor uh, deal uh, to reach across the party lines and make a joint resolution. John 11, beginning to read at verse 45. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place, that's a, their political position, our place and our nation. Notice the political pragmatism here. And one of them, Caiaphas, being a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now take a look at chapter 12, verses 9 through 11. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Pragmatism is the name of the game for most politicians. Very few are statesmen. And these Jewish political leaders, they did not like the blasphemous images that were on Rome's coins, but they were willing to use them. They didn't like Rome's claim to total power because no statist likes to share power unless it's going to be a means of elevating his own position, but jostling for position is the name of the game within the kingdom of man, and they will take out anybody that is a threat to their position. A true, vibrant Christianity that manifests the radical nature of Christ's kingdom as Lazarus's life now definitely did is a threat to status. And it doesn't matter how nice that Lazarus might be or that Christian might be, it is a threat. Why? Because Christ's kingdom has implications for politics. It calls all kings to bow before Christ's throne. Now let me quickly show the literary features that John is going to weave together in chapter 12 in order to show that Christ's kingdom will be a universal kingdom that will eventually swallow up all nations and make them Christian nations. Uh, in a sense, what this is going on here is Daniel chapter 2. It's the stone cut without hands, in other words, it's supernatural, coming from heaven, striking the image of that man, representing those four kingdoms, on the feet, which is the latter part of the Roman Empire in Christ's days, grinding that empire to power, powder and all other empires to powder. The wind blows it away, and eventually there's no more memory of them, and what's replaced? 
It's the kingdom of God that grows and grows until it finally fills the whole earth. So it's replacing the empires of man. That's what's going on. So let me give you some of these literary features. They're only hints, but I think they're deliberately woven together to show a theme. John 12, verse 12. The next day the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Now all the Jews had experienced these massive crowds every year of their lives unless they were sick or had some bona fide excuse to keep away because all Jews, didn't matter what country they were in, they were mandated to come to the Passover uh, once a year. Virtually every known nation of the world would have been represented in this crowd that was ritually welcoming Jesus. So this is the first hint that Christ's kingdom will be even more universal than Caesar's. Next, verse 13 makes a big deal about palm branches. What's this deal that he's making about palm branches? It's always been associated with Palm Sunday. In their commentary in Revelation, Evans and Bubeck point out that palm branches were a symbol of victory throughout the entire Mediterranean world and certainly were a symbol of victory in Rome. So the symbols of victory for Rome are now being countered with the symbols of victory for Jesus Christ. When you have soldiers on the other side of a city that are in the habit of ruthlessly putting down any hint of insurrection, this is a rather bold move on the part of this crowd. But what is hinted at in the palm branches is made explicit in the next two verses that are quotes from the Old Testament. Verse 13 quotes Psalm 118, a psalm that puts... God's kingdom in conflict with the rebellious kingdoms of the world. Now earlier Jesus had quoted verses 22 through 23 of that psalm, and when he quoted those verses to the rulers of his nation, those rulers were furious with him because they understood the implications they needed to bow before his feet. And if they did not, then the very stone that they were rejecting was a stone that would grind them to powder. That's the context of, uh, of that um, uh, earlier quote. So was he messing with politics? Yes, he was. Those verses in Psalm 118 had shown the radically different orientations between politics and Christ's kingdom because the stone that was utterly useless to politicians, they cast it aside is the very stone, Jesus, that has made the chief cornerstone in God's kingdom. So again, you've got this radically different perspective on life. But then come, in Psalm 118, then come the words that are quoted in verse 13. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus is explicitly called the King of Israel, and in context, he is the Messiah who is destined to have a worldwide empire. Now those are treasonous words as far as Rome is concerned. No one could be declared king without Caesar's permission. It even made the rulers of Israel pretty testy because if you look at the Luke 19 parallel passage, exactly the same words, the same quotation from Psalm 118, and the Pharisees are indignant. Do you hear what your disciples are saying? Make them stop. Tell them to be quiet. Rebuke them. And Jesus says, I tell you, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. In other words, this is not some random act of the crowd that maybe was inappropriate. Jesus is saying, no, God the Father himself is providentially orchestrating these things as Palm Sunday cries that are necessary. Why are they necessary? Because God prophesied them. 
Something has to cry out because God prophesied on this day there would be a crying out for his kingship. Jesus must be recognized as king over politicians. Now, when you couple that with Jesus riding on a donkey and the obvious way that he's fulfilling Zechariah 9, you cannot escape the conclusion that Jesus was messing with politics. He was insisting that his kingdom of grace invade that arena. But the symbol shows what stage of the kingdom this is in. It's not a later stage, it's right at the beginning. Because donkeys and mules were used symbolically in the Old Testament for the inauguration of a kingdom. For example, uh, Solomon, when he is being declared and people make their vows uh, to submit to his kingship, what does he come on? Not a stallion, he comes on a mule. And you can see the donkeys that are ridden by the sons of these uh, two uh, judges. And it's, it's an arrogant uh, sign, but they want to be inducted into office themselves. But in any case, uh, if you look in, in, in Bible dictionaries, you will see that the symbol of a donkey means that Jesus is riding before his subjects to give them an opportunity to recognize his kingship and make vows of submission to his kingship. Now, according to the prophets, all kings must bow down before the Messiah, and all kings must conform their behavior to his law. As Psalm 2 words it, if those kings refuse to kiss the sun and do homage to their emperor, he will smash them with his iron rod. So riding on a donkey was a straightforward statement that politicians owed him their allegiance. Verse 42 says some of the rulers did believe in him. Okay, so some are obedient to this mandate from Psalm 118 and Zechariah 19. They do uh, obeisance, but not very many did. But notice, too, the offer in verse 15. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Uh, This, too, is such a contrast between the two kingdoms. The only way that Rome knew how to maintain control was through fear, threat, and intimidation. The whole purpose of Pilate riding into Jerusalem on this day was to remind people he had brutally squashed rebellion in the past, and he was quite willing to do so again. But Christ's kingdom says to its citizens, Fear not. Now, there is going to be fear for anybody who's in rebellion to his kingdom, but he says, fear not, daughter of Zion. If you are a son or daughter of Zion, you don't need to fear. You're secure in the Lord Jesus Christ. Through, even though grace subdues our hearts and subdues our, and conquers our wills, it does so in a way that chases away our fear, fills us with his love. And we'll look at that in a bit. It's the very opposite of politics. Politics uses the threat of force to accomplish its will, but Christ's kingdom grows by grace. Now, that doesn't mean there is no judgment when grace is rejected. Of course, there's going to be judgment, and Zechariah does go on to say that he's going to judge by what? Allowing Rome and and, uh, Israel to be at each other's throats. And it won't be very long, another 40 years, and uh, they will be at each other's throats. They're going to duke it out. But that same passage says that this very judgment is going to be a redemptive judgment that will wake some people up and make them realize what a lousy Savior the state is. And over time, there are going to be more and more who will abandon their trust in this idolatrous state and put their trust in Jesus and enter into his growing peace. And so this is a hallelujah chapter. This is a chapter that has a very exciting story that God had planned way back in the Old Testament. Well, verse 15 quotes Zechariah 9, 
9 through 10, a passage that promises to destroy the war machines of civilization and bring peace to the world. Now that's very significant because Rome tried to bring peace through oppression. But God told Zechariah the kingdom of Christ will eventually be so successful, in verse 8 he says, no more shall an oppressor pass through them for, and then he gives the reason why the oppression of politics would eventually vanish away. Here's what he says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So rather than imposing peace through the sword, as Rome has been trying to do, Jesus will be bringing peace, universal peace, through the power of his scriptures, through the power of his grace, and then Zechariah says, through the blood of his covenant, Christ shed blood. But the point of the Zechariah passage is that Christ's kingdom purpose will not be finished in history until the world's political kingdoms are replaced with Christ's kingdom of grace and biblical law. Eventually, he says, there will be no more need for national weapons to defend nations against other nations. There will not be war, even though the chapter goes on to say ah, that's going to take a long time. <laughs> there's going to be a long period of history where there's still going to be war, but this is the trajectory of the kingdom that Christ sets up. It won't happen overnight. But Pilate could never promise what Jesus was promising. Indeed, it takes faith to believe anything that Jesus' kingdom has promised to us. Why? Because it doesn't come from earth. It comes 100% from heaven. It's heaven invading earth and causing earth to begin more and more to glorify our Father in heaven. It is a comprehensive gospel that impacts even civics. Verse 16 says, His disciples did not understand these things at first. So take heart. Maybe you're frustrated that the church is ignorant about these things. Well, they were ignorant back then too, right? We don't always catch these things right away. But then it goes on to say, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. When he was glorified, past tense, they remembered all of the things about kingship that were being said and done on that day. Christ's kingdom, glory, and his crucifixion are tied very tightly together in this passage as well as in Zechariah 9. Now, if you read the New Schofield Reference Bible on this verse, you will see that the editors stumble all over themselves trying to separate, desperately separate, kingdom glory from the cross. Why? Because they don't believe we're in the kingdom. They think the kingdom's way off into the distant future, and... Um, they realize that Daniel 7 says the time of Christ's glorification is clearly the time when he is given the kingdom. But here it sort of says that he's going to be glorified, so how do we get around this? You, you could read it for yourself. It is eisegesis. For dispensationalists, the time of Christ's glory is not the time from his cross to the present and on into the future. This for them is the time of darkness when things get worse and worse. And Jesus says, no, you're not waiting for way off into the distant when I will be glorified. He says right here, it speaks of um, uh, his glory about to appear. Luke 24, Jesus explained that the new covenant is indeed 
the time of Christ's glory, verse 26. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 11 speaks of, quote, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. 2 Peter 1 says, just before AD 70, it says, this is the time when the light of Christ's kingdom is just barely dawning. The sun's just coming up over the horizon. That's AD 70 already, but it, it, it's here, but it's predestined to keep growing and growing until finally you get to the blast of the noonday sun. And that concept of glorification gets mentioned several times in this chapter. For example, verse 23 says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. I don't know how people can get around that statement. The hour is coming that the Son, uh, has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. In verse 28, Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And those verses continue, Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. The cross as the instrument of kingdom glorification is a message that is desperately needed by the discouragement to counter the discouragement of our present age. The church expects defeat because it sees victory as postponed until the second coming rather than flowing from the cross. Sadly, most people do not see the cross as reversing history. They're waiting for history to be reversed off into the future, the second uh, coming. In fact, I would dare to say that postmillennialism is the only eschatology that has a cross-centered perspective of history. It's the only eschatology that sees the cross as reversing history. The church is passive today because it thinks that Jesus needs to accomplish something more rather than taking seriously his words on the cross, it is finished. Uh, sadly, the New Schofield Bible says in a footnote on this verse, Quote, the king has been rejected by his own nation, and therefore the predicted temporal blessings of that kingdom for both Jews and Gentiles had to be deferred until the king's return in glory. And Christ says, no, the glory is not postponed off into the future. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. So he links kingdom and cross. Now where this conflicts with politics is that God's glory flows from the weakness of the cross and enables an inward love for God's law, whereas politics flows from the power of the sword and ignores God's law and forces conformity with man's constantly changing opinions. Next, Christ's power over death is mentioned in the raising of Lazarus from the dead in verses 17 through 18. Wow, that's incredibly amazing power that was displayed there. When the people recognize that Christ's grace can do what no political leader in Israel can do, they welcome Jesus. But verse 19 shows what a threat the gospel was to politics. And the true gospel will always be a threat to politics. It is interesting that the leaders, perhaps because of the demons who are within them, they intuitively, they automatically recognize that this is a worldwide call from Christ. Look at those words, verse 19. The Pharisees said, therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. To strike their strategies 
to stop this movement, it wasn't working. And I don't think John was including that statement by accident. This is all deliberately woven together. Look, the world has gone after him. Though the humanism of, of the Pharisees, Pharisee, Pharisees looked unstoppable to many, Christ, by the eye of faith, could see it's really the world that now is about to be conquered. And from that time to the present, Christianity has been progressively taking over the world. Then in verses 20 through 22, John weaves another story into the narrative that shows very literally that the Pharisees were right. They got it right when they said the world's going after him. Look at the Gentiles, the world that's going after him in these verses. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. There's something interesting about the language here because only proselytes who had been circumcised who had become Jews were allowed to partake of the Passover so it's certain these Greeks were proselytes that they were had become Jews but he calls them Greeks to emphasize the fact that this is a universal kingdom that Christ is establishing it's the world that is going after him it's a thematic picture that he is painting and what began on that Sunday has continued nonstop. The world is coming to Jesus with some estimates of there being 2.2 billion Christians in the world, which is almost one-third of the world's entire population. Now, not all of them are true believers, but that's what the censuses seem to show, 2.2 billion. And what happens when true Christianity invades a country? Well, persecution and conflict from the politicians. It's always happened. It always will happen until those politicians become Christians. They intuitively sense a threat to their power. Christ's reign will not be finished until all kings bow before him and all areas of life are subject to his kingdom. Even in America, the very self-conscious hatred that you are beginning to see against vibrant Christianity is becoming clearer and clearer. They know the implications of Christianity much better than a lot of Christians do. Now in verse 24, Jesus promises that much grain will be harvested. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much grain. Much grain will result from Christ's death. So yes, there is pain. Yes, there is death. But through that, he's going to achieve the victory. Now, I've already dealt with the next point. Father has promised to continue to glorify Christ. But verse 31 is another blow to pessimistic eschatology. By the way, pessimistic eschatology of every branch tends to embrace the politics of this world rather than the politics of Scripture. Why? Because if you don't have a robust gospel that has the power to change even politics, you must have an impotent eschatology. A robust gospel always goes with a robust eschatology. And I don't care how reformed people claim that they are, if they don't think that the gospel is powerful enough to take over the world, they do not have the gospel of John. Okay? It is a truncated gospel. This gospel indicates that it is sufficient to transform politics to make all kings bow to the law. Anyway, this says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Christ's cross is sufficient to deal the death blow to demons, to Satan, to his kingdom. We don't need to wait for the second coming. His cross 
has sufficient power to destroy all of his enemies. We've got to get it into our heads that God brings triumph out of the apparent jaws of defeat. He manifests his strength and weakness. And people say, but look at how weak we are. It doesn't matter how weak we are. We don't get our strength from this world. Where do we get it? We get it from heaven. Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. It does not originate here, right? It originates from heaven. It's that stone cut without hands that crushes uh, everything that's in opposition to Jesus. Everything worthwhile originates from heaven, not from earth. In fact, he told Pilate, you could have no power against me unless it was given to you from above. Everything must come from heaven. The cross of Jesus Christ is all the power we need to conquer Satan. It guaranteed Satan's defeat. It guaranteed the capture of the world from his hands. And that same blood of Christ continues to be used by people to cast out demons today. It says in Revelation 12 that God's people resist the dragon and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. That's all we need, brothers and sisters. The blood of the Lamb and the Scriptures. That's all we need. Next, in verse 32, Jesus promises that his death will draw all peoples to himself. Now that is an astounding statement when you start digging into it. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. And I want you to notice the certainty of these words. He said, if he is crucified, if he is lifted up on the cross, he will draw all peoples to himself. There will eventually be no pagan tribes, no pagan pe peoples on planet Earth. All peoples will be Christian peoples. And again, you can see the contrast between the pretended universalism of Rome's empire, which has always been the impossible dream of rebellious mankind. Let's build an empire right from the Tower of Babel, right? Let's have a universal empire. But you compare that with Christianity, nothing compares with the joyful, willing embrace that the world will give to Jesus. Not forced, a joyful embrace of Jesus. So this is a frontal rejection of the imperial theology of Rome. Their Pax Romana, which is Latin that means the peace of Rome, left countries bloodied and enslaved. The Pax Christus, the peace of Christ redeems countries by Christ's blood and brings them into liberty. Grace always exalts the wonderful law of liberty, the Bible. Now, of course, Jerusalem itself was an appropriate symbol uh, for the place where Jesus would be symbolically enthroned on their praises. And that's because in the Old Testament, Jerusalem was treated as the capital of the world. Why? Because it was the symbol of the heavenly Jerusalem, which was the capital of a worldwide empire that's going to be invading this earth, right? So even the place that he has all of the symbolic language of kingship given to him is so appropriate. So this chapter hints at a glorious eschatology of triumph. It is called a triumphal entry for a reason. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. Is there any place on the earth that the sun doesn't go? I don't think so, no. And so Christ's kingdom declares the eventual defeat of Rome, of the earthly Jerusalem, of Satan, and of all other enemies that stand in opposition to his law. While Palm Sunday is not politics, don't misunderstand me here, it is not politics, it certainly confronts politics. 
But I want to end by quickly pointing to the most radical difference between these two worldwide empires, and it is the difference between grace and power. The Jewish leaders had bought into power religion and power politics, but Jesus starts, continues, and finishes everything by grace, conforming people to his will. What politics will never, ever, ever accomplish, grace will accomplish. Uh, let me just illustrate with I could have given more, but here's some illustrations of this. The first seven verses uh, illustrate how Christ's kingdom is a kingdom of love. Mary's perfume that she poured out upon him was so expensive that verse 5 says it would take the equivalent of of an average man's entire year's wages to buy that perfume. So if you just translate this into some kind of a gift that cost you whatever your entire year's salary was, you can see how extravagant this gift was. Now, did Mary need to give that to Jesus? No. But she wanted to because she loved him so much, no sacrifice she gave seemed too expensive to give for Jesus. And this is the way it is with those who love their Savior. The triune God has given us so much that no sacrifice we give is too expensive. Our hearts are one. We willingly submit to King Jesus. He didn't force us. We willingly submit to him. We're inspired by Jesus. We willingly lay down our lives for him. This kingdom is utterly different from the kingdom of Caesar that had to constantly bear the sword in order to force people to submit. The tepid praise and flowers that were thrown in front of Pilate on Palm Sunday were fake ritual, but this costly gift came out of sincere love. And Christ's kingdom is a kingdom of love, not a kingdom of political maneuverings. Now, since perfect love casts out fear, it's no wonder that the citizens of Christ's kingdom are told, fear not, in verse 15. Fear, manipulation, and bribery were the tools Rome used to force submission of its citizens, but where love resides, fear is absent. And there is coming a day when fear will be completely banished from the world because Christ's kingdom of love is so pervasive. Third, in contrast to this world's leaders who expect their citizens to lay down their lives in the emperor's ungodly wars, and I don't think that's ever stopped, (laughs) there's always that expectation, Christ laid down his life for his people. His death was anticipated in verse 7, and he clearly prophesies it in verses 23 through 27. And and that latter passage, uh, 23 through 27, is just amazing, you know, how laying down your life, uh, yeah, dying, is uh, what gives real living. Uh, It's not only reflective, if you read the commentaries of Christ laying down his life for us and rising, but it is reflective of the way his whole kingdom works. We die to ourselves, that's when we really enter into life, and we enter into it more abundantly. All you have to do is look at Rome, which is long since dead, right? And compare it to Christianity, which continues to grow, and you can see that Christ's kingdom goes contrary to all expectations. It's unlike any other kingdom. It does not conform to man's thinking. In fact, it demands that man's thinking conform to God's. And then finally, verses 35 through 50 contrast the demonic blindness and darkness of the politicians of that day with the light that Scripture gives to Christ's kingdom. When the light of the Scripture is shone on politicians, usually it is rejected 
And the reason is because the light of Scripture is utterly incompatible with the kingdom of man. Romans 8, 7 says, The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. Politics will never be changed apart from grace, apart from God changing the hearts of men, women, and children. And as Hebrews 8.10 words it, and Hebrews 10.16, until God writes his law upon their hearts, and they gladly, normally, joyfully, willingly submit to his law. Beginning to read at verse 35. Then Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks. So it's not a static growth. It can go up and down depending on how people respond. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. But praise God, verse 42 says, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. So at the beginning of the kingdom, there were politicians who said, yes, we totally embrace this picture of how we should live. But ah, there's sadness in that verse because they didn't totally submit. Uh, Because political thinking was still a part of their system, the verse goes on to say of even those believers, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Those politicians were acting like politicians. They were ashamed of confessing Christ and promoting his law within politics. You see, there is nothing new under the sun. Christians intuitively recognize the conflict between Christ's kingdom and politics, and they shrink back from confessing Christ in that realm. It's sad. It doesn't have to be, but it is sad. Well, Jesus goes on in the final verses to warn people not to be ashamed of his word. If politicians would heed the theology of this chapter, we might see the kingdom of light overwhelming the kingdom of darkness. Light always banishes darkness. His light spreads as his word is shone into every nook and cranny of life. Now, I started this sermon by presenting two parades, representing two kingdoms, two centers of authority, two worldviews, two saviors, and two quite different outcomes. My question to you is this. Which parade best represents your thinking? I want you to think about that. Which parade best represents your thinking. There was one parade that boldly introduced Christ and confessed Christ in politics. There was another parade that just as boldly rejected Christ in politics and accepted Caesar's claims over them. It is not an honor to your Savior to play politics rather than representing the kingdom of heaven to earth. May we as a church more and more align our thinking with Christ's kingdom and less and less with the pragmatic politics of this world. Amen. Father, this chapter is such a rebuke to me 
to our church, to the Church of America, to the Church of the world. And we ask you to forgive us for those times where we were ashamed to name your name, perhaps in a grocery store when our kids were boldly singing about your grace and about your law and we're like embarrassed. Please, Father, help us to have the boldness of our children. And yes, talking about your word in every public arena that we come into contact with. May it be as natural to us as breathing where we look at them as being silly when they do not name the name of Christ. Help us, Father, to never be ashamed of Jesus that we might not receive that rebuke that those, um, that those uh, civil officers who believed in you received. Help us to with enthusiasm, with boldness, with cheers, with palm branches as it were in our hands, to acknowledge your kingship in our life, no matter where we are, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for our whole lifetime. We want to be bold for you. We want to be used by you. And so fill us with a holy boldness by filling us with your Holy Spirit, even as you were poured out in Acts 2 and again in Acts chapter 4 upon your church. I pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and enable us to speak your word boldly. Father, grant to us your kingdom boldness, and we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.